We're going to go to the book of Colossians this morning in your New Testament, Colossians chapter number one, the book of Colossians and chapter number one. We have made it to November. And one of what I believe is one of the most overlooked holidays that we have, and that's Thanksgiving. It's probably the most scriptural holiday that we have because we are to be thankful for what the Lord has done for us and is doing for us. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about that. I'm thankful for the wonderful grace of God and, uh, and his goodness to us. Um, I am, I'm doing something this year I've never done before, ever, 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 but I'm already listening to Christmas music. Oh, good or bad, whatever you think about that, I don't care. <clears throat> but it seems like it comes and goes way too quick. Yeah. Christmas time just comes and goes way too quick. So, hey, I just started listening to Christmas music. I mean, I, I'm in the groove. Jingle bells and all that stuff, you know? <laughs> Something like that. Anyway, I love, I love Thanksgiving. And we, Thanksgiving must be practiced. Isn't that right? being thankful to our God. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to see a little bit about uh, our wonderful, wonderful giving of, our, of thanks to our Father. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Coloss, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus and Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. We're going to start, stop our reading there. I've titled the message for this morning, There's No Other Place to Get Saving Grace. Only, only one. Only one. Let's pray. We'll get going. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, once again, we just ask for your power and guidance in all that we say and do. Lord, that you would take this outline and you would make it a message from you. Father, I don't know the needs represented in the auditorium today, but you know each and every need. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, 
that you would deal with us right where we are in our spirituality. And there may be someone in here that does not know Christ as their personal Savior. And we pray for them, Lord. We lift them up to you. And we ask that you would speak to their heart. And you would draw them to yourself. That you would deal with them. That, Lord, they may come to an understanding and a willingness, Lord, to turn to you and to trust Christ before it's eternally too late. Help us, Lord, to be thankful the way that we should. Thank you for your wonderful grace. We pray now that you would bless as only you can and trust you for these things. For we ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for standing. And please, please do be seated. We're going to think this morning about the giver, the giver of grace. The giver of grace. The Apostle Paul writing to the Colossian believers said in verse number 3, we give thanks to God. And in verse number 12, he said, giving thanks unto the Father. We know that the Apostle Paul was a grateful man, that God had done very much for him. He, he knew what he was grateful for, and he knew to whom he was grateful. And one of the many things he desired to impart to the, the, the uh, Christians in Colossus was the attitude of gratitude, that they would be thankful for the things that God had done for them. You know, an attitude of gratitude makes a person much more pleasant to be around. It's, no, it's true. And no one likes to be around someone who's grumbling, complaining all the time. Uh, I mean, as God's people, we have so many things for which to be thankful. So many things. Six times the scripture challenges us to be grateful with these words. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Six times in Scripture you can find that. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good. Somebody ought to say amen right there. For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. We know this. God enriches our lives with His goodness and with His grace. And that's why grace and gratitude go together. Grace and gratitude always go together. And I want us to look this morning at the relationship between our gratitude and God's grace. So we have to think about the priority of grace What do you mean, preacher? Well, grace always comes first. It always comes first. Verse 2 there, it said to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossus, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So before the Apostle Paul mentions gratitude to God, he mentions the grace of God. And that's because grace always always comes before gratitude. We're grateful to God because of the grace that we have received. I'm very thankful for the saving grace of God. I'm telling you, without that grace, I wouldn't be standing here today. Paul had received that same wonderful grace. God's wonderful, wonderful grace. Uh, The story of Paul's conversion is found three times in the book of Acts. I I love that. He loved to share his testimony. (laughs) He loved to tell people when he got saved. Um, No, no, we should all have that testimony. We should know that time that we have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he saved our soul. It's a wonderful thing. If somebody was to ask, well, when did you get saved? That's not something to get upset about. That's something that you have a time to trumpet how God saved your soul. Amen. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And he loved to share his testimony. And before he became the Lord's apostle, the, the apostle Paul, he was the Lord's adversary. Isn't it something? I mean, he hated Christianity. He, he, he hated Christians. And he hated the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted nothing to do with that whatsoever. Let, let me read you a little scripture out of Acts chapter 26. 
Excuse me. These are Paul's own words of his feelings toward Christians. He said this, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them unto strange cities. Now, this is the man that wrote the biggest part of the New Testament. Come on, after he was saved by the grace of God, God allowed him to write the biggest part of our New Testament that we have. This man hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He hated Jesus Christ. Hated anything to do with them. But it goes on in in, in that chapter. He said this, Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Now, here was a man who thought that by persecuting Christians and trying to stamp out the name of Jesus, that he was doing God a favor. No, he really thought that. He really believed that along the way. In another place in the New Testament, his first letter to Timothy, Timothy, he calls himself a blasphemer and a persecutor. And yet, in spite of all that, Jesus came to him and offered to save him. No, we're talking about a Christian killer. We're talking about somebody that persecuted Christians. And yet, God came to him, willing to save him if he would just trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing thing. And, and, and God offered to save him by his grace. By God's grace. By God's grace. And Paul would later write that, that God's grace came to him in, 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 in an exceeding and abundant measure. So the great apostle Paul, he learned what many saints have learned since that time, that God has more grace than we have sin. Don't you love it when the songs just go right along with the message? It's not like we planned that. Mercy sakes, I'm sitting there listening to her singing. I'm thinking, wow, only God can put something together like that. I'm very, very thankful for that. See, the apostle Paul, he was not worthy of God's grace. Not even. He was not deserving of God's grace. No, 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 no. Grace is never a matter. Please listen. Grace is never a matter of what we deserve, but what we need. We need God's grace. We don't deserve God's grace, but we need God's grace. And grace had come to Paul, uh, uh, come through Paul. Grace had come through Paul to the Colossians. Grace always comes before gratitude. And it's because of what God in grace does that we ought to be grateful to Him. He saved my soul. I'm thankful that He saved my soul. I'm thankful that I don't have to worry for one millisecond about going to hell. I don't have to worry at all about ever going to hell. No, no, no. And and I'm telling you, He changed my life. No, no. He He took an old sinner. He took an old drug addict. He took an old drunk and pulled him out of the depths of sin And placed his feet upon a solid rock and put a new song in his heart and changed my life completely. He did that by his wonderful grace. It wasn't anything I deserved, but it was everything that I needed. And it was by his wonderful, wonderful grace. Grace always comes from God. Comes from God. There would be no grace if it were not for God. 
Uh, grace goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We could go look at it. Where two poor sinners, they sought to hide themselves from God, that they had, the God that they had forsaken, the God they had sinned against, against, but God refused to let them go. I said they sinned willfully against God, but God refused to let them go. He found them. He forgave them out of the fullness of His grace. He saved Adam and Eve from their sin. Hallelujah to God. Whatever grace that exists in the world today, it finds its beginning in God, without a doubt. But grace often comes through others. What do you mean, preacher? Grace, uh, grace. God uses people as the instruments of his grace. No, I'm thankful for that. Okay. God doesn't have to use us. He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. But he chooses to use us as instruments of his grace. <clears throat> Most school children that have studied history know that without the friendship of an Indian named Squanto, that there might never have been a first Thanksgiving ever. However, the pilgrims knew that Squanto was more than just a good friend that they found when they came to the new world. They saw him as an instrument of God's grace. Well, what are you talking about, preacher? Well, historians believe that around 1608, more than a decade before the pilgrims ever landed in the new world, Squanto was captured by European traders. He was taken to Spain and he was sold into slavery. But God already had an amazing plan for this youthful Squanto, a well-meaning well Spaniard who treated uh, him well, Squanto well, taught him the Christian faith. That's who bought Squanto. And uh, Squanto eventually made his way to England and he worked uh, in the stable of a man named John Slaney. Slaney sympathized with Squanto's desires to return home and he promised to put the Indian on the very first vessel that was bound for America. Now, it wasn't until 1619, 10 years after Squanto was first kidnapped, that a ship was found that he could go back. And finally, after a decade of exile and a decade of heartbreak, Squanto returned home. But when he arrived, more heartbreak awaited him at that point. Because an epidemic had wiped out his entire village, everyone that was there. Um, and at that point, life seemed very, very unfair to Squanto. There were no doubt that there were times when Squanto must have wondered and if there was any reason at all for, for any of the things that had happened in his life. Now, a year later, he learned the answer to that. What do you mean, preacher? Well, history says that a shipload of English families arrived and they settled on a very land once occupied by Squanto's people. Uh, when Squanto met them, he spoke to them in English, which he had learned because he had been sold into slavery and, and learned the English language. And so feeling a kinship with them, he helped them to adapt to the life in their new home. And according to the diary of, uh, diary of Pilgrim Governor William Bradford, Squanto, excuse me, it says this, Quote, became a special instrument sent of God for our good. He showed us how to plant corn. 
where to take fish and to procure other commodities and was also our pilot to bring us to unknown places for our profit and never left us till he died. Now I'm here to declare this morning that only God could have orchestrated these events to preserve the pilgrims when they arrived. Unbeknownst to any of them, he had prepared this young Indian boy to be the channel of his grace to them. Those that were seeking to come for religious freedoms. Amen. Absolutely so. Grace always comes first. And it always comes from God. But it often comes through others. There's a couple of provisions of grace. Paul mentions two of the many, many gifts that we receive when we receive God's gift of grace. He mentions a father in heaven. I'm so thankful that when I, can, when I pray, I can start out, if I so choose, Father. No, talking to my God. He is my father. I was adopted into the family by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are born into God's family, and God becomes our heavenly Father. And that is a privilege that belongs solely to Christians. Only to those that have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. That only they can call God Father. Those outside the family cannot know Him that way. The unbeliever may know him as God. They may know him as the creator. But only a Christian, those that have been born again by the Spirit of God, can call him Father. To the Christians in Galatia, Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So before God can be your father, you must be his child. And before you can be his child, you must receive Jesus as your Savior. Some might say, well, what does it mean for God to be your father? It means, listen to me, please. It means that he loves and cares for you with the perfect love of a father for his child. Come on, that's our heavenly father. Loving, caring, wonderful, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, forgiving, heavenly father. That is our God. It means that when we hurt, that he will comfort us. It means that when we are need, that he will meet that need. It means that when we are lonely or afraid or confused, it means that he will protect us and that he will guide us. I'm so thankful that I can trust him no matter where I am at in life. Very thankful. But it also means that we have a future in heaven. We read there uh, in verse number five, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Where have ye heard before the word, uh, before the word, uh, before in the word of the truth of the gospel? So we have this future in heaven, and a promise of heaven gives us hope. I have great hope. I attended several funerals this year, and of those that had trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, I, I, I had, I, I knew in my heart we'll see them again. I have the hope of that. My mom was saved by grace. I'll see her again one of these days. My dad, even though he lived a wicked life for 72 years, trusted Christ as a 72-year-old man. And I'll see him again. Amen. That time is going to come. It gives us hope. In the Bible, the word hope, listen to this. In the Bible, the word hope is a word of certainty. Come on, we use hope like, well, I hope that happens. But in the Bible, the word hope is a word of certainty. It is the assurance that we have because we know that God always keeps his word. 
God always keeps His word. When God says that He's going to do something, you can look forward to it with eager anticipation. That's what the word hope means. Sometimes someone will say, well, I hope that I'll go to heaven when I die. Not me. No, I don't hope that I'll go to heaven when I die. I know that I'm going to heaven when I die because God said that those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as, the, as their Savior have a no-so salvation and God is not a liar. I know for sure when I close my eyes in death here that I will open them in the presence of the Lord Himself. Amen. Very thankful. And that's why a Christian lives in hope of heaven. Peter says that the fulfillment of our hope is laid up in heaven. Laid up, that means it's reserved. Our our hope is reserved in heaven. If you're saved by the grace of God, there's a reservation in heaven with your name on it. With your name on it. Come on, and you are the only one that can claim it. Your reservation. Some years back, we, uh, I took all the staff and we went to a uh, preacher's meeting up in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And Pam and I got there a day early and checked into the hotel where all of us were going to be staying. And uh, when the staff arrived, well, when they went to the front desk to check in, uh, they were told there were no rooms available because they didn't have a reservation. Not at all. And so, I mean, they immediately contacted me. And what's going on, preacher? I said, I guess you just have to sleep in your car. (laughs) Oh, no. 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 I went down and talked to the person at the front desk. And things were cleared up. And they were checked into their rooms. Well, what was the problem, preacher? Well, all the reservations were in my name. They, They couldn't get in without my name. If you're ever going to get to heaven, you have to come through one name. One name. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. No one gets into heaven without a reservation. It's not going to happen. And the only way to get a reservation is to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Verse number four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all the saints. So being a Christian means that, uh, well, it's having a father that cares for you. So thankful. And it's having a father, uh, a future that is secure. My future is secure. I, I know where I'm going to be for eternity. And it's also having a faith that will not let you down. My faith will not let me down. Oh, no, no, no. I have let God down too many times, but he has never let me down. And my faith in him is not going to let me down. I I have that assurance. And then comes the prayer of gratitude. Look at verse 12 again. Come on, we're moving along great this morning. It says, giving thanks unto the Father, which, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul says there's only one right response to all that God, that God's grace provides. There's only one right response, and that's gratitude. Giving thanks for what he has done. Giving thanks because he was willing to send his only begotten son to pay our sin debt. That we, that we might be able to call him our heavenly father. 
If we've experienced God's grace, we should be grateful. We should be grateful for a father that cares for us. We should be grateful for a future that's secured for us. We should be grateful for the faith that will not let us down because it will not let us down. And if we are grateful, we ought to give thanks unto our Heavenly Father. Give thanks. And the reason is because apart from His grace, apart from His grace, we would have no Father in heaven. And we'd have no hope of heaven. Remember, grace always comes first. And it always begins with God. I'm thankful that some 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. His father was not Joseph. His father was God. And he was born into this sinful world. And Matthew chapter 1 tells that he was born to die for our sin. That's why he was born. To die for our sin. For our sin. He had no sin. He was the perfect sinless son of God. No, he lived his life perfectly sinless. How'd you like to have that for a big brother? Couldn't blame him for anything. He lived a perfect sinless life. And yet allowed those that hated him to take him. And to beat him unmercifully. Never opening his mouth. He took that beating for me. He took that beating for you. He took that beating as part of our payment for sin. They tied him to a whipping post and they whipped him with a cat of nine tails. To which historians say that many that were tied to the whipping post never left the whipping post alive. The cat of nine tails, a whip with nine tails on it, had pieces of stone and bone and broken pottery and metal tied to the ends of each one and it would just rip the flesh away as they continued to flail that one that was there at the whipping post. They beat him unmercifully and then they took him and mocked him and ridiculed him and plaited a crown of thorns and put it upon his head and smote him over and over and over and once they got tired of doing that they took him out into the street and laid a cross upon his back and marched him through the streets of Jerusalem up to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, Mount Calvary. As they marched him through the streets of Jerusalem, people spat upon him over and over and over. They pulled his beard out. They cursed him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him over and over and over again. They got him to the the place of the skull up to Golgotha, and he laid down his life on that cross. No men forced him. They didn't have to fight him. Oh, no, no. He laid down his life on that cross, and they hammered nails through his hands and through his feet. And then they propped that cross up there, and he hung there, suffering probably more than any man's ever suffered for some six hours, shedding his lifeblood for you and for me. These pictures that we see portraying Jesus hanging on the cross, that's not, that is not accurate whatsoever. 
That the Bible says that his visions, that, 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 that it was so marred, truly, that probably you could scarcely tell he was a man. They had beaten him so very badly. And he hung there and he bled and shed his life's blood, the perfect sinless blood of God that pulsed through his veins. And he did that for you and me. And then he gave up the ghost. What do you mean, preacher? He died. Oh, they killed him. Oh, no, they couldn't kill him. Oh, I'll say it again. They couldn't kill him. He was a very begotten son of God. He was God in the flesh. They could not kill him. He chose to give up his life and die for us. He died for us. They took down his body. They prepared it for burial and laid it in a borrowed tomb. In a borrowed tomb. It was just borrowed because he wasn't going to need it except for three days. And at the end of that three days, he rose from the dead, victorious over death, victorious over sin, victorious over hell. And not many days after, he ascended to the Father where he sits at his right hand even today. And those that are willing to repent and trust Jesus Christ as their personal Savior can be, have their sin forgiven and have a home reserved in heaven. No, those who repent, what's that all about? It's a, it's a turning of your heart to God. You mean I got to clean up my life? Oh, no, 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 no. We come to God just the way we are with the willingness to receive Him and what He has for us and He saves us and then He cleans up our life. It's more than just saying a prayer. It's more than just going through the motions. There has to be that time that we genuinely put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, desiring what He has for us. And I'm telling you, at that very instant, no, 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 when we call out to Him at that time, I'm telling you, our sin is forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Our name is pinned down in the Lamb's Book of Life. We have a place reserved in heaven for us for eternity. He paid that price for you. He paid that price for me. He paid that price for, the, for all of mankind. Well, preacher, then why in the world and why isn't the world in better shape than it is? Because people today still mock God and still ridicule God and still deny God just like they did back then. And it's not God's fault that the world's in the shape that it's in. Oh, no, no, no. He's offered up eternal life to whosoever will. No, no, whoever wants to come to Christ and trust Him as a Savior, it's wide open. Oh, no, 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 God does not pick and choose who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. God said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But we have to make that decision. We have to humble ourselves, admitting that, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need a Savior. Yes, I need what God offers me. And we have to come. We have to come. God's not going to force us to get saved. We are not naturally saved just because grandma and grandpa were saved or because we were raised up in church or because we've been a good person or because we got baptized as a baby or whatever the case may be. No, 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 no. We're saved when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Get this, we are saved by God's marvelous grace. His amazing grace. He paid that price for us. Absolutely. And I'm thankful that I not only have that home reserved in heaven, but I have hope as I walk through this life. And I have assurance that God is there for me. 
And I have a heavenly father that I can go to day or night or night and day. He's never turned me down. He's never put me on hold. He's always there to listen and to respond and to help and to encourage all along the way. All along the way. How long has it been since you told God, thank you for saving your soul from an eternal hell? No, no, it just took some time to thank him for a while that he saved your soul. It's an amazing thing. I, I, I hardly a day goes by that I don't rehearse in my own mind that time that I got down beside my coffee table all those years ago and just cried out to God, asking Him to save my soul. He saved me that day just like that. I rehearse it often. I, I, I'd have to say daily it, that it comes to my mind. I'm so thankful. And I thank Him because I, I have no idea where I would be or where my family would be or what would be going on if God had not saved me by His amazing grace. How long has it been since you thanked Him for protecting you and for providing for you? I mean, He's the one that gives us everything that we have. How long has it been since you've just taken some time to thank Him for all the things you're surrounded by in your home, for your transportation, your clothing, for the food that's in your pantry? How long has it been since you've just really been thankful for a wonderful, gracious, heavenly Father? And if you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, wouldn't it be a good thing to do that today? I mean, just to get it all settled today. All you have to do is have a desire. All you have to do is want what He offers you. And I'm telling you, He'll never turn one away. And once you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you can call God your Father, and you can know that you are His child. There's no other place to get saving gra- the saving grace of God but from God Himself. As Christians, we should not just use November to be thankful for what God has done for us. We, we, should, we should use every day that God gives us to be thankful for all the things He's done for us. And if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personally beg you not to leave this place today till you get that settled. Because we would be more than happy to take you aside and take a Bible and show you what the Bible says about that. We can't get saved for you. Wish I could at times. But we can show you what God says about it. All you have to do is desire it, to want it. I'm telling you, God's never turned one away and He'd not turn you away.